St. Anne's Orthodox Church presents Wisdom, recordings of classes on the classic texts of the Orthodox Christian faith by Father Daniel Greeson, priest at St. Anne's Orthodox Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Here is Father Daniel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, O Christ our God, be with us as we study the words and life of your servant, Ignatius. Ignite within our own hearts love for you and desire for your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So this week we are discussing the Epistle of Ignatius to the Tralians. Um, next week we're not going to be having class, and I, the week after that we might need to fandangle something, because I believe Parish Council is being moved to the 27th. So... Either we take that week off as well because, well, the 27th, but no, sorry, I've already in my head, I was going in November, and I was like, 27th is going to be a bad idea, so, but that's not the case. Um, um, so I'm, I'll, I'll email out what exactly our plan is. Uh, we might start doubling up because we probably could have easily doubled up with last week, although I talked on and on, so I still made it an hour. Let's try not to do an hour today for the sake of everyone. Uh, but if, it's, if we spend an hour, we spend an hour. That's okay. Um, is there any uh, questions or anything about this reading? Well, I thought it was very interesting that he seems to be dealing so specifically with forms of docetism. This early. Yes. Where did you see the docetism? Well, and then after you show me where the docetism is, explain <laughs> docetism. Because okay. I have talked about docetism, but I don't know if everybody's either listened to the first podcast and the last two are all still somewhere in the cyber world. Um, well, let me explain it while I try to find, because I'm having to page through online here. Um, but docetism was the teaching that Christ did not physically have a body and die on the cross. He yep. only appeared because where comes from. How about chapter 9? Chapter 9, okay. Because he talks about it. Sorry, I'm still paging through. It's okay. Um, I always yes. be interested in what that is. Yes, so, yeah, there at the beginning of chapter 9. Where he says, stop your ears, therefore, when anyone speaks to you at variance with Jesus Christ, who was descended from David, was also of Mary, who was truly born and did eat and drink. He was truly persecuted. And he goes through a number of these things. And stop your ears to anyone who speaks. To, oh, sorry. That's the other recension. Okay. But somewhere he talks specifically about those who talk about it being a mere appearance. Mm -hmm. And having gotten there, then back at the very beginning where he talks about the body and the blood of Christ and, and his passion mm -hmm. that it's like, oh he had this on his mind at the very beginning of the letter. Mm -hmm. The next chapter does the, the unbeliever yes, say suffering is only apparent. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Seem to suffer is another way to say it. But you can see it in chapter 9 already, right? He's like, what's the word that's like the theme of that chapter? It's like repeated truly. over, truly, 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 barely, barely, I say it to you. <laughs> truly, he was all of these things. Do we have some of this today, this heresy? 
somewhat. Jehovah's Witnesses don't what, believe they don't believe he has a body anymore. They, they also there's something about the suffering that's weird too, isn't there? Jehovah's well, Witnesses? they they thought that Jesus was they thought Jesus was only a man when he was born on earth, and then he was not crucified. He was like nailed to a stake or something. Oh, that's right. Man. Yeah, that and then torture stake. They always. Should, yeah. Yeah, and then and then they think that he rose again as like a spirit, no longer flesh, and that when he appeared to his disciples and said, you know, touch me, feel me, he was just like putting on a flesh suit for them. Like he he wasn't actually like a body. Avatar. But it's fascinating how the you know at some point you're orthodox, you kind of look at these heresies, you're just like that's just kind of like. I don't believe that. And they're like, do people believe that? Like, actually, there are people <laughs> who believe this. And I'm sure if you looked in some of like their hermetic circles and like Gnostic Christians, you're gonna get and this stuff always waxes and wanes in popularity. Go to Barnes Noble, Books a Million, because Books a Million has a huge liquidation sale right now of a bunch of books that nobody obviously wanted. Uh, <laughs> They're always going out of business now. That, like, the, like a mattress warehouse. Yeah, like a mattress warehouse. <laughs> except those were laundering money for drug lords, I think. <laughs> I don't know what Books a Million is doing. But um, what you can just you can look through those books and you can just find any heresy that you want. Uh, because all these heresies are live, kind of. Um, and there's always a reason behind that heresy. Why, why do you think that somebody would not want... Uh, it's a seem that God died, or that Jesus died. I already kind of showed the answer there. But <laughs> <laughs> they don't want God to die, right? Because they have an idea, especially for the Greeks, they don't... This idea of the God dying is just, you know... For some of the Greeks, other than the Greeks, they have gods that die every year, and they're like annual festivities or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you can get the other, like, it seemed like he died because there's usually some, like, preconceived idea that's there that's uh, usually denigrates in some way the fullness of the humanity or the fullness of the divinity of Jesus Christ, and that they're together, and the, the paradox of that. Um, which is at the crux of the entire Christian confession about who Jesus Christ is. I mean, doesn't it sometimes come out of a misguided piety? It's like it would be irreverent to think of God really becoming man and really suffering. I, and I, I think that's exactly what's going on in certain the, the Gentile circles that Christianity moves into, is that their ideas of God... Uh, now, when I say Greek, right, there's a huge eclectic mix of whatever Greeks think. There's kind of baseline there. But like, if you think, oh, the Greeks were like, I'm an Aristotelian, or like, I'm a Platonist, or like, they didn't really do that. It was much more of a flux at this point, uh, if it was ever really that clear. I mean, there was a school dedicated to Aristotle, but um, they were operating in similar ways. But you also have all the mystery cults that are going around. There's all sorts of stuff in the Greco-Roman Empire at this time. Uh, from the Persians, from you know all the stuff, the Manichaeanism that comes later from Persian influence, and so they're about in the same spot as we are in regards to like the marketplace of like if you want to believe something, nobody's going to stop you from buying that stupid book from Barnes and Noble and <laughs> drinking it with your with your later. pumpkin spice latte. <laughs> what did you say? And then selling it at McKay's two years later. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, there's a lot of McKay's and crazy stuff. <laughs> It, this is a this is a conversation I was having with uh, one of my daughters last week about how that 
you know, it, it's it's really essential to, to, to know some of this stuff because like being grown up as a Baptist, is as well, just love Jesus. Love Jesus, trust in Jesus, know that Jesus died for you. But without a real understanding of, well, Christology, um, before long, now the Jehovah's false witnesses come by, or, <laughs> or, the, or the Mormons come by, and uh, like, well, we believe in Jesus too. Uh-huh. And But if you don't know who Jesus really is, you can't say, well, truly God, truly man, a hypostatic, you just, um, then you're going to find yourself agreeing with them or, yeah. or really unable to refute what they say. And it, and I think Ignatius is helpful too because some people would say like, well, opinions, these are just opinions, right? Yeah. Like really at the end of the day, the church is uh, just kind of a group of people that get together and love God. But Ignatius would say, yeah, but which God are you worshiping? And, I mean, you'd also say, who's your bishop? <laughs> <laughs> which people are you gathering right. with? Right, which, which people are you gathering with? Because that God has assembled a particular group of people and given them, just like he did with Israel, like he gave them a law, he specifically identified and says, this is who I am. And the law is a reflection of who he is. It's not some uh, attachment or something, right? It's like, I think this is a pretty good way to do it. Do, you know, do those things. Like, no, like Yahweh, God, uh, created Judaism to operate, if you want to say Judaism, because it's not really like Judaism yet until you get the division later post-Jesus and the division between Christianity and Judaism, because rabbinical Judaism is not the what <laughs> Moses is doing. Uh, they can't. They have no temple. Uh, but once you get this, um, the need and necessity here for truth, and that it's actually found within a particular body uh, of people that has been, I'm going to say vouchsafed, I like that word because we like to use it, but vouchsafed the truth of the gospel. Um, it's not just kind of like, that's just your opinion, man. Let's just hang it. You're like, yes, of course you have friends. Like you can hang out with people. I'm not, but <laughs> the kind of access to the cup, access to uh, the kingdom, those things, there's boundaries to it. And I think you're hitting on, and this is an issue and it's an extreme issue now because of the questioning of human nature and what exactly, I don't know how we got to Ignatius with human nature, but here we are. Uh, <laughs> the question of, of human nature and debates going on in churches about sexuality, what it means to be human, all of these kind of things. Uh, if it's based in that there's not really truths about who God is, and it's really just kind of sentiments and emotionalism, well, guess what? You can believe anything. And if you identify as a Christian, well then of course you're a Christian. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to run somebody down and say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I might say, I think we maybe need to unpack <laughs> a few things like language and like what these symbols mean, because nobody else is going to identify you as a Christian if you deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm sure there's a place here on the turnpike you can go, but like... <laughs> That's like they would not really confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God in the way that any other church is going to confess that. Um, Some churches might make you a bishop, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's who would say, "Who's your bishop?" Uh, obviously, not our bishops. Um, but these things really do matter, and Ignatius sees how it flows out. Like if you if you have like the incorrect body, you have the incorrect dogmas or the faith. Uh, you're going to end up uh, where there's kind of a 
your ethics are going to get the morals, the way in which the body is supposed to actually live and act. Uh, and this is really not even looking at other people outside of us, but just even like looking at our, ourselves and trying to live into the truth of the faith itself. Uh, because we actually have the pearl of great price. We have the things and we need to be living into that and not um, squandering the inheritance that has been given to us. Can I ask one other thing about that? Absolutely. You know, talking about docetism again, you know, I think of my own evangelical background, and of course it was important in that background that Christ physically died and rose from the grave. But when we talk about the atonement and what Christ did, I don't know that his physical death really played a large role in it. It was more, and maybe this wasn't even said explicitly, but it was working in the background. Some people do say it explicitly. It was what he did after his body died, taking, if I may say it reverently, the wrath of the Father against right. all sin. And so it was the spiritual thing he did, not the physical one. They would even say that. Well, but it's just the way that it like worked. Right. It's like, I mean, it was very important that he died physically, that no one would have denied that in the circles I moved in. But when we talk about, well, what was important about what Christ did, it was taking the wrath that was due to us. Substitutionary atonement, I think, is that. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the term, yeah. And, and so I think, in effect, the importance of the physical death was denied, or yet greatly diminished at yeah. least. And it was this supposed spiritual thing going on. But to read this or the Apostle Paul in Colossians, it's like, no, no, no. It was the body on the cross and yes. the blood that was shed that mattered. Well, I think this is also uh, like Orthodox Christians, uh, you can say God is like this, but definitely Orthodox Christians understand this, that God is a materialist in a way that like materialists now are kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, and on that kind of heresy in that direction, but like God became material. He sanctifies material. At the end of the little bit from the pre-communion prayer that I talked about in the sermon about um that for this healing of our soul and body, the same when we, right before we read the gospel that loom in our hearts that I read uh, right before the divine liturgy class, it's the healing of soul and body. There's all, the prayers hit constantly this idea that we are this unity and that God had to die and shed His blood, and it also means for us um, that we have to struggle against sin to the point of shedding blood. Uh, I don't mean self <laughs> laceration or something like that but what I mean is that it's a real life and death struggle and I think one of the the matrix are where like some of those evangelical particular ideas about uh, substitutionary atonement and I want to come back to substitutionary atonement in just a minute but is um, the fact that how do they describe or explain martyrs because the whole entire like matrix of martyrdom in the early church is that they like identify themselves completely with Jesus Christ by dying for him. Uh, and if you read the early church stuff about it, it's, it's just fascinating how, you know, and you have and you have a lot of martyrs accounts. Somebody's going to be martyred and other people who are not baptized say, I want to be martyred with them. And they're numbered with the saints. Mm -hmm. They did not receive a water baptism, but they were baptized through their, their death. Uh, and the church honored that death and numbered them of the saints. Uh, now, this is also where you start getting into like, well, you get like 
but they weren't baptized. Like, yeah, but they were baptized. They weren't chrismated. Yeah, but they were. <laughs> they died for Jesus Christ. They literally shed their blood. Um, and the church has accepted that as the sacrifice that they initiated into the kingdom mm-hmm. in the most immediate <laughs> way possible. Um, if you have a spiritual understanding, and of course there's a spiritual understanding of what's going on in the cross, but if it just becomes a mere transaction, you lose all aspect of what the cross is about. Um, and so you'll get in a lot of Orthodox circles pushback, I'm going back to the substitutionary atonement, um, where we'll say we don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. And I always scratch my head a little bit because that that phrase, if we're talking about this like exchange of like the wrath of the Father poured out upon the Son, um, yeah, scriptures doesn't talk like that in the way like uh, the tradition never really highlights that. But Jesus did die in our stead. Like he did, like as the second Adam, he did in a sense substitute if you just hear the, the words that we're talking about like there's a real sense in which he is in the place of what a christian should be like right and that's why the cross why faith in the father all the way to death and beyond that he would raise him that's exactly what the path of the christian is so in a sense yeah he's a substitute uh for the first adam who failed and israel and all that so i i'm always a little hesitant when Folks, I know that you weren't saying this, Reed or Erica, but uh, when they say Orthodox Church doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement, I'm like, okay, in a rarefied particular way in which, like, the popularized version of atonement theory that gets bandied around that doesn't really sound like Paul at all, okay, absolutely. But we do believe in, like, that he came and died for us. Okay, relevant to that, um, yeah. I, I told you about this, but, um, like, an agnostic humanist spoke with me and like his number one objection to Christianity was blood atonement. Like he, he couldn't understand why God would require the shedding of a man's blood to remit our sins. And the book of Hebrews says without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So in the entire ancient world without sacrifice you get nothing. Outside of even like Israel. Right. Like sacrifice is like built into Right, but his, his question was like why well him? why why? Like, because, like, in Islam, for example, and he, I mean, obviously he wasn't a Muslim, but in Islam, like, God just, you know, says, okay, I forgive you. right. Yeah, like, you, he, like you, don't, you don't need any blood atonement, any of that. But in Christianity, it's absolutely crucial. Like, there is no atonement for anybody's sin without shedding blood. So, like, like maybe if you have any kind of answer to that, but, like, why? I, I think a lot of it has to do, is bound up in what our whole vision of what salvation is. This is me attempting on the spot to answer this, right? (laughs) Uh, That the path of the cross and the shedding of blood, uh, it's not something intrinsic to like a metaphysical quality of blood. I think it is more of a fact of kind of what I was talking about in the sermon of uh, the self-crucifixion, the act and going all the way to uh, death and the shedding of blood. That sacrifice is because of our freedom in who we are. Uh, it's like so basic to what it means to be saved to actually sacrifice uh, because of others. Because you need to make room for them. You need to make space for them. You need to to redeem somebody, to bring them back into the fold, to fight off you know the oppressor. All of these things require 
sacrifice. And I think the ultimate place where you're going to find sacrifice is blood being shed. What else, what is the highest sacrifice but to give your own life for somebody else? That would be my kind. So, and why I say that is connected to the whole vision of salvation because that is exactly what our salvation is all bound up in is that we ourselves become, I mean, uh, cruciform, that we become like Christ, that we imitate Christ. And because of our freedom, because there's others, and because of what it means to be glorified, then the path is going to have to be our own self-crucifixion to the point of shedding of blood. Would it kind of be like in that book uh, by Saint Innocent that you sent out, where he was talking about how everybody has to bear the cross, but like some people we just speak up just a little bit more. Oh, sorry. <laughs> where he talks about how everybody has to bear the cross, but some people can do it for their redemption, and some people just suffer. Yeah, just suffer. Yeah. Well, because I think existence is a cross, and like what Saint Innocent is saying, like either you accept it and bear it, and uh, I want to say give thanks in a way. And allow that to actually shape you and to where you actually become loving, forgiving, aware of others. In a way that the only way that you really do that, because if we were just, if this was a pleasure driven thing, it would not be about anybody else. If it was just hedonism, and I'm not trying to make any John Piper references, to <laughs> if you know what I'm talking yeah. about there, uh, but if it was just kind of like a hedonism, and like, yes, I think real goodness does feel and operate like it makes us happy but it's not the the carnal sense of that at all and that's why it's like real goodness is hard a real you know marriage is hard a real like parenting relationship a real friendship a real loving of somebody else is hard and you either run away from that i mean why like loneliness depression like all of these things like it's a society that has decided that like this isn't what we want. We want, you know, our cheap snacks. <laughs> you know? And that's the struggle because our society is so admired, you know, mired in this. It's really hard for all of us individually because it's like we have to, you used to have to fight against the tide and now the tide is just like completely against you. You used to have like natural culture would like help you on some of these things and now it's not there. So that really means it's incumbent upon us to spend, like, really band together. We don't have to call it the Benedict Option. <laughs> but we can cut, like, that we actually do need, like, each other and, like, deep communion and fellowship with each other, or we're just going to drown separately. Just call it desperation. Yeah. Have you guys seen the meme where it's like somebody's drowning? And high five. And a high five. And it's like, uh... Thoughts and prayers, high five. <laughs> the, the hand goes down to because, like, so I mean, this is a way in which we can live our Christian life, and like, I think we're all. I'm guilty of this, like, of like thoughts and prayers, high five, and then the person isn't drowning. So, you know, and there's aspects of where we have to have boundaries and like realistic. But there's also, a, you know, if we can't physically help somebody, then we need to be like shedding our blood in prayer for them. Our life is in our brother or sister. When I say brother, I mean mankind. <laughs> well, this is great and good conversation that has somewhat to do with Ignatius. Yeah. <laughs> to tie it into Ignatius, it makes me think, like, bearing suffering makes me think of chapter two, where he talks about believing in his death, you may escape from death, which is like, in his own circumstance, he's obviously not talking about physical death. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not going to escape from, I mean, he's going to Rome for his purpose, to mm-hmm. escape from death by dying. <laughs> right, well, I think he's talking about there, like, you believe in the death of Christ so that you all will escape from death. Mm-hmm. 
the real death. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Death as in absence of like not having God. Not physically dying because he seems to. Uh, I don't know, we haven't read it yet, but in the epistle where he's. Did we already read it? About him becoming like bread for the lion's mouth? I thought that was. I think it's the first one. Am I just forgetting? It was either Ephesians or Romans. I think it's in Romans. Okay, we're not there yet. That makes sense. What what paragraph were you all looking at? Uh, We're looking at chapter 2. According to Jesus Christ, who died for us in order to. Yeah, okay. I, I appreciate in chapter 4, Ignatius, he says, I have great knowledge in God, but I restrain myself, lest I should perish through boasting. For now it is needful for me to be more fearful, and not give heed to those that puff me up. For they that speak to me in the way of commit, com, commendation, sorry, scourge me. Um, the struggle that Ignatius shows in the desire, like he knows where he is headed, but he also is still trying in heading to martyrdom to actually approach it in the correct and a humble way. And it can be really hard <laughs> when people, as you're going to your martyrdom, everyone's like slapping you on the back, way to go. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to get martyred. <laughs> you're kind of like, yeah, I'm going to get martyred. <laughs> I'm going to be something. Um, to reflect on as a kind of reminder for ourselves. Uh, and I think this is hard because... At least for millennials. What would you be, Micah and Tim? Like, you guys aren't, like, technically millennials? I think you were just below whatever that is. You're just below millennials? That's a low place to be. (laughs) 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 I'm a millennial, supposedly. I'm not, like, 30... I turned 34 this year, and I'm like, I'm a millennial? Like, I guess so. Yeah, I think, well, 90 is millennial, Nine. Well, I'm 84. Yeah, 86, so, yeah. Yikes. So, part of where where I'm going with this, not just humor, but the reality that I think a lot of us millennials and lower, and maybe you guys exist in a little bit different world, but I don't think, I think you guys might have it in a heavier dose, um, is the struggle that millennials have with affirmation and needing affirmation and getting actual, like, uh, a male or a female to actually kind of like support, attend to, and like uh, in a good way. And I don't mean like in an unhealthy way, but uh, that we all like there's a malaise in the millennials of just kind of feeling adrift and not supported. Um, and that it can be hard to navigate humility with that because. Like I was saying about that natural current or like the natural culture giving you a kind of like baseline to operate off of. When you don't have that baseline, the spiritual life becomes even harder, more complicated because, you know, you can read uh, spiritual literature like this and be like, I should never like, it'll say things like um, never like give a um, compliment to somebody because that might give them an opportunity to have vainglory. If we really enforce that with millennials, <laughs> that's the high five meme. <laughs> and some like you know, we we need to find ways and be able to lift each other up and affirm. And I don't mean that in the cheap kind of sense of like affirming people by just letting everything exist <laughs> without truth being involved. Um, but to actually be able to support one another and to encourage one another in ways uh, that we're not afraid 
um, in a world back then where you knew who you were, <laughs> you knew your station of life, you knew your parents, you knew your grandparents, you knew like, you know, you have the, all of this kind of like social structure that does not exist anymore. Um, so I think we have different challenges for ourselves. Uh, pride is always a challenge and humility is always a challenge, but it might be more, I don't want to say serpentine because it has like a negative, but like more twisted and complicated than what uh, even just a few generations ago might think about that. I don't know. That's just what I have observed and seen and experienced myself. So I encourage people <laughs> uh, because people need encouragement. You might think that people think that are self-sufficient, but they're not self-sufficient. They, they need you. And you say, oh, I don't have anything to offer. Yes, you do. A good word goes very far. Be a, be a Barnabas, right? Like the encourager. Is there any? I was struck there at uh, chapter 11. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought it was beautifully said. Um, and these men are not claiming like the Father, for if they were, they would appear as branches of the cross and their fruit would be incorruptible. <laughs> Why have he called you through his passion as being his members? And it goes on, having promised its union. It's a very striking picture of union with Christ. Mm -hmm. I think this sort of passage. Uh, was helpful to me again in the evangelical background thinking okay the Orthodox keep talking about union with God not about you know atonement and all of this right. and to see oh no no this is a very old idea <laughs> I mean it's there in the New Testament too but it's hard to see it if you've learned to read the New Testament right. differently right, right, right. and to see that this is his concerns that we would be members of Christ yeah, it's fascinating because you read the whole Gospel of John and it's like the point of the Gospel of John in so many ways. But you get, if you if you get these main metaphors or kind of these routes through Scripture and you don't ever really look in the other routes or the other symbols or the other ways in which Scripture talks, you can get a really distorted version of Christianity. Um, I think you can even get this sometimes, and I'm going to, you know, with union language with God that you can... Uh, end up, uh, and I'm not saying you're saying this read, but you can end up with union with God of extracting the cross from that union. And you can start talking, you can start using these, you know, all these big orthodox words, theosis, deification, kino well, kenosis, you probably don't have much with the direction I'm going with kenosis, but, uh, and it ends up sounding almost like if I meditate, <laughs> and if I kind of do these things, especially with words like energia, or the energies of God, right? Like, it can feel like what I'm supposed to do is kind of become almost like new agey in a way that like I actually miss the content uh, of Christianity <laughs> for this kind of like language that can grow up. Now, if you actually read the fathers, <laughs> if you actually read, you know, even the 20th century elders, you're not going to come away with this, but there's an aspect, I think, uh, again in our culture especially with like meme sharing culture where we kind of get these little snippets of the fathers or sayings from the fathers uh, and it can be have the buzzwords in it but the, the content like sometimes the cross uh, isn't readily visible in some of like quotes when you cherry pick these quotes um, but that suffering is kind of right there at the core of what it means to become Christ-like is to become cruciform Ignatius says here very beautifully 
this was last week because it was the last one voted here, but he talked about like the union of like music, like it's like like harmonious union. He likes that image. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was really good because I remember the first time I read like well, maybe not the first time, but like I decided to read the New Testament all the way through. It really scared me because I noticed it was all about union with God. Yeah. And I, like, <laughs> I I kind of thought that like people who got saved would be like swallowed up, you know, they wouldn't be themselves anymore. <laughs> well, you know, and that's that is a temptation with some of the language. Uh, which is why Christianity is so strong on uh, not in the individual in the sense of individualism, but that like every person made in the image of God is uh, important. We're not going to be swallowed up by God because God wants friends, and I mean that in the like deepest, thickest po- like way possible. Not like friending on Facebook level <laughs> of friend. Um, I mean that's exactly what Jesus says. Like the friends of God. That's that's who the saints are. Um, to actually engage. And go to that depth with him is too very different, <laughs> and they're all super different. You got some real personalities uh, in the saints. I'm just looking at Saint John Maximovich, who's a personality. Saint Nikolai Zicha, personality. Seraphim Asarov, personality. Sergius Rodonezh. You don't start Russian monasticism <laughs> without being a personality, and people actually follow you. Um, Elijah, there is a personality. Um, now, that doesn't mean that you have to become a personality. Like, have, have you all read Everyday Saints? There's some of those stories in there. We've got, like, uh, Father Nathaniel, who is a personality, uh, which is odd. But sometimes holiness uh, creates oddity because the world is a little crazy. I had a question that's yeah. from chapter 9. And this is something he states like over and over again in his epistles. He uh, emphasizes in multiple places that uh, Jesus Christ is of the race of David. Mm-hmm. And uh, he'll, he'll say that a lot. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty sure what that means is he's the biological descendant of David. Like he's like David is actually his great, great, great grandfather. Right. So that, that is what that means, right? I think it can mean that. I also think it's it's hitting on the whole messianic being of the house of David, and that right. is fulfillment of the promise to David. Mine says the family of David, which is um, a little more specific. I, I, I think so because I, I think that's what it's that's what it's really hitting on. Not that, and in the context too of the physicality. I mean, that's yeah, the Greek word is genus, which I think can mean like race or family or genealogy or something. Yeah, yeah. sounds right to me. <laughs> I have never been good at foreign languages. Are there any other aspects here? I find it fascinating that he is always talking about and underlining this unity with the bishop, the presbytery, and the deacons. I know we've hit on this, and Ignatius is famous from this, but as we've been reading this, and we're a few in, how does it strike you now, this unity uh, aspect that he is constantly uh, going on about? Why does he talk about it all the time? It's like every opportunity, like every church is like, and (laughs) make sure. It makes me think that there are likely problems, (laughs) because you wouldn't spend that much time um, going over this unless that that was really something that he thought that they needed to hear. Uh, like he not, not only tells 
you, you better be unified with your bishop and with the presbyters, with the deacons. But also he goes and tell why, why you need to do that or the, or the, the consequences of not. And um, What are some of the consequences that he says? Um, well, we're, we're going to be in the first few chapters there, I think, right? Well, he, he um, chapter two and three hit on that pretty hard. Yeah. Um, well, apart from these, no group could be called a church. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which is strong, very strong. Like, like you know, hey, you're, you, um, you, you can't, you can't do this on your own. And and if you uh, place yourself apart from the clergy of the church, you're not in the church anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, from some point of view, it almost is of a piece with his emphasis on Christ truly having done all these things physically. It's like these physical things matter. There's a physical gathering of the church, and if you're not at that gathering, you're not part of it. Yeah, that's a great point. That's, that's, that's really good. And I think this flows from 1 Corinthians 11 that I was alluding to. I was going to read it today, but I thought my sermon was going to on too long. <laughs> so I decided to wrap it up. But uh, that the whole quote you know, of uh, eating and drinking uh, to judgment or to condemnation uh, the real kind of high point of that um, in the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is all about discerning not only um, right the, the, the body and blood of Christ, but it's discerning of the body of Christ is also the sense of like how we're relating to each other. So 1 Corinthians 11 is all about uh, Lord's Supper and it's about divisions that exist in the church. Uh, and he ties the Eucharist into it's an, uh, an aspect of unity, um, so that if uh, you had issues, apparently, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least the way he talks there at the end of chapter 11, that you had people eating before other people, or like you had like sects within the church uh, that are not sharing everything completely, uh, and this creating division within the church. And the Corinthian church was a super divided church <laughs> from the very beginning of the epistle, right? You got like, I'm of Paulus, I'm of, you know, people all over the place. Um, but I, th- I, I think like there was a wealthy class of Corinthians who would like, they, they would have their own little like party, the, the coffee hour thing. Yeah, they would have their <laughs> own food. And then, and then Paul would say, you're basically shaming people of nothing because you're not sharing with them and they're just kind of like by themselves. And they're by... Uh, negating the feast of the Eucharist because you're not actually together, which the body is supposed to be together. Uh, and I think I, I love how Paul, obviously I love how Paul does this, but like, <laughs> I love how Paul does this of intertwining um, and this is in no way to negate obviously we discern that it's truly his body and blood, right? But that part of that discernment is also discernment of the church and it's an ecclesial thing matter and that's why partly why communion is admitted to those who've actually bound themselves or brought themselves uh into the body uh because if we really believe it's the body and blood then it's going to be those who are firmly within the lines of the body um and this is 
a characteristic of Paul and it's characteristic uh, of an understanding of what the church is. So what does it ultimately, not, not necessarily what does it mean, but more importantly, how you avoid receiving the Eucharist unworthily, or like everybody receives unworthily, but what I mean is like drinking it to your judgment and condemnation, because we pray that we not do that whenever we're about to take well, it. Well, I think what I was saying at the end of the sermon, basically, you know, you know when you've just gone through the movement, <laughs> when you just approach commune, and then you've even forgotten what you've done by the time you get to, you know, back to this epiphka, it's become a mechanical thing. Uh, to great discern, I think, is to, as part of the reason why historically the church has, uh, there's an organic connection between confession and communion too. Uh, we in the OCA do not do the practice of uh, con one confession for one communion. And a lot of that practice occurred historically in the church because you had people not communing but once or twice a year. So if you're only communing once or twice a year, guess what? When it's time to commune, you're going to go, you're going to fast all week, not just on Wednesday and Friday. You're going to go to confession. Uh, you're going to do, you know, three or four canons. You're probably going to read, you know, pre-communion prayers on top of the canons. Uh, you know, all of these things you're going to do, and that then becomes a tradition. Then we come to our context, and there's been... Uh, I would say a revival, but going back to whether it's weekly communion, and so then it becomes a question mark of how then do you prepare yourself if you have a practice of uh, weekly, uh, and the OCA, at least the document like the, the Diocese of the South has, is like confession like monthly is what's mentioned in there. You have other sources that say like quarterly at least as a kind of check-in. Um, and they're organically related to each other because you need to discern where you are, because all of our sin is not just individualistic sin, but it affects the entire body. So us actually attending to our wounds, to our struggles, to our sins, is ways of also discerning the body. And some of those sins can be like, I got into a knockout track out fight with somebody at coffee hour about their kid did this to my kid, or, you know, God knows. Uh, you know, and I still haven't asked, you know, tried to seek healing and I just avoid them now. That, that would be a reason to, you know, if you haven't been able to, like, ask for forgiveness, that to refrain from communion that week. And I think we get in our idea that, like, I have to receive. And that's not always the case either. We don't have to receive. Um, especially if we've got stuff separating us from our brother and sisters and separating us from God. Now, all of this is requires discernment. Uh, when you feel uneasy about something, then don't do it and ask the priest. Don't do it as in don't commune and then ask the priest about how to remedy that. Usually probably the answer is going to be confession. And then doing something that they, the priest asks you, you know, yeah, you should go reconcile with your brother. And that's, that's what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't go to offer uh, unless you've reconciled yourself with your brother. That was a really long answer, but... <laughs> he may also be bringing up the bishop and the unity because um, St. John, his teacher, um, mentions several times that, that the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. He also mentions the Nicolaitans, which must, I don't, I'm still not sure exactly what that means, like what that group is, but it's some kind of heretical group. And what he's doing is emphasizing the apostolic teaching and the apostolic succession. So he's there's a hierarchy and if we want to like proceed uh, without condemnation, we need to receive in communion with the apostles mm -hmm. because Christ gave them 
his body and blood first, and then it's supposed to be distributed through those through yeah. the twelve. And that's that's why the uh, ability to bind and loose is given to the priesthood, because it's all in continuity. Uh, the bishops with now uh, Ignatius is not strong on. As far as I know, you will not find him say anything like apostolic succession in Ignatius. Um, mostly because I think when, when you're in the first or second generation, and there's like two bishops, maybe one bishop between you and the apostle ahead of you, um, you're not having to make that kind of argument yet. But by the time Irenaeus, which is like a generation later, they overlap. He's a little bit older than Ignatius, if I'm remembering correctly. Maybe it's in the context that he's in. He will start making arguments about apostolic succession. Because I think he had to deal with Gnostics in another like world that like subverted what like Ignatius would say, would say. So he he would say like, yeah, you're saying this, but that's not because Judas got secret knowledge. That's something later you get like the Gospel. I forget which the Gospel of Judas. That was a huge like ordeal in the '90s. Um, that like really like Judas actually got the secret that Jesus really wanted to tell all of us. Wow. Um, yeah, there's uh, being within the church has a lot of layers more than kind of um, deciding that you're going to have like pledge your membership or something. I think yeah, also like, he's so emphasizes union because he sees it as a real thing. It's not like a virtue you just should have. Like you know, when we talk about the cross, we don't just mean you should behave. Like we're talking about like a real a reality. Mm -hmm. And in some translations of this uh, book, in chapter eleven at the end, he says. God promiseth union, and this union is Himself. So it's like that. We like kind of is the stakes of union. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think that really underlines like our union with God is something He's accomplished forever that we access by actually living into what uh, to the cross to actually that union, because He's opened uh, heaven for us. By taking on our nature and bringing our nature up into the heavens, that's what the basic, uh, the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ. If you want to say what's the takeaway, that's the takeaway. We have access to heaven because our flesh has now been made heavenly. Any other things? Because we're, we're about an hour. Somehow we managed with three pages to <laughs> do an hour. Thank you all for your attention.